Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Adit Klein, who is the executive director of Kesha. Adit is a national leader for social justice with more than 20 years experience in the nonprofit sector. Since 2001, she has served as the founding executive director of Keshet, a leading organization for LGBTQ equality and inclusion in the Jewish community. Adit built Keshet from a local organization with an annual budget of $42,000 to a national organization with an annual budget of over $3 million. Under her leadership, Keshet has supported tens of thousands of rabbis, educators, and other Jewish leaders to make LGBTQ equality a communal value and institutional imperative. Adit also spearheaded the creation of leadership development programs for queer Jewish teens and mobilized Jewish communities to help defeat a proposed constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage and pass two gender rights bills in Massachusetts. Additionally, she served as the executive producer for Keshet's documentary film, Inani, coming out in a Jewish high school. Prior to leading Keshet, Adit was a leader in the LGBTQ community in Israel and helped envision the Jerusalem Open House. She serves on the board of Joined for Justice and the leadership team for the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable to strengthen the Jewish social justice movement. Adit was honored by the Jewish Women's Archive with a Women Who Dared Award and was selected for the Forward 50, a list of American Jews who have made enduring contributions to public life. I'm excited to have Adit on the program today, not only to hear about all these amazing accomplishments, but also to talk about her work over the years and how the Jewish community may or may not have changed their organizational culture around issues of inclusivity and acceptance. Welcome to the program, Adit. Thank you so much. We heard a little bit of your accomplishments and your background with the organization, but I'd love to hear from you how you found yourself in this role of activist and specifically as executive director with the organization. I'm someone who, from really as far back as I can recall, always felt a deeply strong sense of connection to the Jewish people and to Jewish history and a commitment to justice and a sense that justice work was what I needed to be doing with my life. And what first catalyzed that awareness in me was an experience I had as a very young person, as a four-year-old, actually, when I learned about what were called the bad men who had taken away my grandparents and everyone who was, from my perspective, very elderly in my family away when they were young adults and had been the ones to put blue numbers in their arms and were the reasons why my parents never met their grandparents and why there were so many lost members of our family. And as a young person, I was only introduced to that glimpse of cruelty and evil in the world in the form of the bad men. And that's all that was shared with me. But I knew that it happened because there were Jews and I knew that I was a Jew. And so I both immediately became afraid and convinced that the bad men were at that moment on their way to get me too, and felt this ferocious sense that I needed to do whatever I could do to change the world so there wouldn't be bad men. For me now as an adult, you know, look back on that and, you know, and as a parent to imagine what must have 
been kind of roiling through me as a four-year-old, it makes a lot of sense to me that that had such a profound impact. And, you know, and indeed, you know, from then on, I felt a clarity that never really wavered that I needed to be involved in doing work to change the world. That, of course, as I grew older, you know, grew beyond that simplistic understanding and that simplistic a sense of personal threat around the bad men to include an awareness of and a sense of responsibility regarding you know a whole host of issues of oppression and injustice. Moving forward quite a few years beyond age four, when I came out and discovered that despite my sense that there was no contradiction between my identity as a queer person and my identity as a Jew, I discovered that there were many people who expected me to feel a sense of contradiction. I discovered that there were many LGBTQ Jews who felt a very painful sense of contradiction and even impossibility of integration and felt like they had been receiving that message in many ways over the years from the broader Jewish community. And so that kind of first encounter face-to-face with a sense of how dramatically different the Jewish community was versus where I thought the Jewish community should be was what initially motivated me regarding LGBTQ issues to want to work to make the Jewish community a place where every queer Jew can feel at home and a community that I can feel proud of. You mentioned being a parent and we'll get into the work a little stronger in a minute, but I'm curious, how do you pass that on to your kids, right? You had a narrative coming from you know, very intense tragedy that your family was very affected by, that obviously your kids are growing up in a very different world. How do you instill a four-year-old, you know, with that same understanding of purpose within, you know, your culture without having that narrative within someone's family of, you know, of those bad men? It's a great question. You know, it's a question that every parent who's engaged with the world (laughs) wrestles with. It's obviously a question that is painfully current every moment of every day nowadays, given the political climate that we're in. You know, it's something that my wife and I talk about a lot and struggle with. I mean, we have a three-year-old, you know, he likes to chant my body, my choice, because he remembers that chant from last year's women's march that we took him to. And he was very proud to have a photo of himself with a sign that says books, not bullets that ended up in the Boston Globe after the March for Our Lives. You know, we're kind of following his lead, taking him where we go and talking about the work that we do as about, you know, making the world safe for other kids and, you know, using language that we feel like is age appropriate and will engage him and make him feel like he is a part of this kind of a broader community effort, but not paralyze him, you know, with terror. I'm very aware that, you know, I think I was way too young to be told that bad men took my great aunt away, who was the one who I asked about the blue numbers on her arm, that bad men took her away and tattooed her arm, and that they did that because she was a Jew. It is what it is. And I'm very grateful that I was able to respond to that in a way that led to me feeling personally galvanized and that I can trace, you know, my commitment to justice uh, and my commitment to fighting injustice to that moment. It also, in many ways, you know, was a traumatic moment and 
I spent a lot of nights as a kid lying awake, you know, waiting for the bad men to come get me. And that's not something I wish on any child. Mm-hmm. My husband and I are expecting our first child and I've you know, often been thinking and just kind of the culture we're living in right now, you know, thank God I don't have a 78 year old where I actually have to kind of explain and talk about these things and the blessing and the curse, right? Is that, you know, had things gone differently or had our climate been differently, your son wouldn't have these experiences that kind of activate that in him and these memories of standing up for what's right. And I'm sure not to say you wouldn't have ever gone to a march for issues in our world. Sure, sure. But it's a bittersweet pieces of what we're all living through that kind of is activating us. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting piece of your narrative that I'm curious how we are able to pass that along. Wonderful. So before we go into the work, I want to kind of look at your experience from the Jewish professional perspective. You started in this position with the organization that was very small and have since grown it very large. So I'd love to just kind of hear about that experience over the years of doing that and not to insinuate maybe you were at the right place at the right time, (laughs) you know, not to say that it wasn't your skills, but was it, you know, something that was really primed for activation that you were just able to kind of take off? Was it, you know, something that helped or was it just the kind of gradual building of coalitions? I just, I would love to hear about that experience. Yeah, I would say yes to each of your questions. You know, yes, I think that, I was blessed with starting to build this organization kind of at the right time in American history, at the right time in American Jewish history. In many ways, a wave was building, and we've been able to kind of ride the crest of that wave. And the change has been gradual and incremental, and the result of multiple individual strategic alliances and actions and progress has been dramatic and remarkable and remarkably uneven and inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And there are many couple mile radiuses in the United States where there may be two different synagogues where, you know, a 15 year old gay kid would have, you know, entirely different experiences to trace back to, you know, our early days when I started building Keshen in the early 2000s, it's hard now, you know, even for me to think, to remember how dramatically different the climate was, both in the Jewish community and in broader American society. I mean, back in the early 2000s, it was very hard to find rabbis who were willing to publicly stand with us. Back in the early 2000s, there wasn't a single Jewish high school in the country with the Gay Straight Alliance. Back in the early 2000s, the idea of Marriage equality seemed like an impossibility, and many people thought that the few activists who were working for marriage equality were entirely delusional and were chasing after a dream that would never be realized. You know, the most common response I would get in those days when I would tell people what I did for work, when I would say that, you know, I worked for an organization that was seeking to create LGBTQ inclusive Jewish community the most common response I would get would be, huh, so wait, how is that a Jewish issue? Or how is that relevant to the Jewish community? Or sometimes I would get, huh, gay and lesbian Jews. Are there many of you? So, um, (laughs) Oh, geez, wow. Only a few and we all know each other, right? Exactly. So a very, very different climate. We had to fight in those early days to get 15 minutes on the agenda of a staff meeting of a day school to do a quote-unquote training. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, our trainings are generally two to four hours long, mm-hmm. but in those days it was a triumph if we could get 15 minutes. And, you know, and there was a tremendous reluctance within the Jewish world across the denominations, you know, including in the more in the liberal denominations to talk about LGBTQ issues in schools, to anything related to kids and gay issues, sparked people's concerns and fears. It was certainly very significant for Keshet that we started as a local organization in Boston, in Massachusetts, in the state where marriage equality became legal, because that had a seismic impact on this state and eventually on the country. Because after marriage equality first became legal in Massachusetts, we faced a three-year fight to keep it legal during that three-year campaign, we all knocked on doors and had you know thousands and thousands of conversations with people. And so we reached a point in this state that no one could really say that they didn't know a gay person. And you know, for most people, once someone knows another person, they're able to see their humanity and able to recognize that they want you know the same you know basic things out of life that everyone else wants. You know, and we saw that kind of change happen, you know, step by step over the years in the Jewish community as well. So fast forward now, I'm in year 17 in this work, and no one asks me anymore, how is this relevant to the Jewish community or is this a Jewish community issue? Today, the learning edge or kind of change gap for a lot of Jewish communities, you know, tends to focus on issues of gender identity and expression. Kind of that's where the discomfort and the resistance is. Not everywhere. I mean, we certainly still work with plenty of communities where we hear kids experiencing homophobia and, you know, kids still use that's so gay, you know, as a common insult and adults don't know how to respond. And generally speaking, particularly in more liberal communities, there's a basic level of awareness and at least tolerance regarding sexual orientation issues and just a real lack of knowledge and certainly a lack of comfort and ease and competency regarding issues of gender identity and expression. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Adit, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Matt Grossman is the Chief Executive Officer of BBYO, who discusses with me the joys and challenges of leading a pluralistic teen movement and how he supports his teen leadership in creating the type of community they want to be a part of. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. So one of the things we're looking forward to and always looking at is what kind of experience and environment is being created for that teen when they choose to do something Jewish? Can it and should it resonate differently than it did with their parents? Is it competitive with everything else that they have to do on a weekend or a week when, you know, the whole world is trying to catch their time, their views, their whatever? We're competing against the toughest stuff out there in the audience that the whole world, consumer and otherwise, wants. So looking at those experiences and how to make it as compelling as possible, as modern as possible, in a way, we're reinventing the Jewish brand for that post-bar bat mitzvah, right? Up until bar bat mitzvah, Judaism for them was largely defined by their parents and a synagogue or institution that their parents were a member of. All of a sudden, they're coming to something that their parents aren't a member of and that they're suddenly responsible for creating. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Matt in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Adit. 
Well, I think this is a good time to kind of talk a little bit more about what the mandate is of your organization and what kind of work it does within the community and maybe a little bit about how that's changed over the 13 years as you've grown or the, as you've mentioned, shifting in what is and is not easy to push or what is or isn't an issue in the Jewish community for your work. We work in three major areas. We do work within Jewish community institutions, so synagogues, summer camps, youth movements, JCCs, federations, day schools, basically all different kinds of Jewish institutions to work with leaders, both staff and lay leaders, to help make those institutions LGBTQ inclusive in policy, in program, and culture. And the goal really is so that if a 15-year-old queer girl walks into a JCC, you know, with her parents, as she walks down the hall, she will hear and see things that tell her that she is a part of that community, that she will see offerings programmatically that are inclusive of her. And, you know, and that notably she will not hear anti-LGBTQ and heteronormative exclusive language that make her feel not a part of the community. So that's kind of one major area of work. Another major area of work is working directly with LGBTQ Jewish teens. We actually started out not working directly with teens. The way that we were affecting the lives of teens was to work with adults who work with teens and to give them the skills that they need to work with teens responsibly. But we heard over the years from a bunch of LGBTQ teens that the change was happening too slowly. And they appreciated that we were working with their youth movements and with those who were in day schools with their doing trainings of their teachers. You know, and a couple of kids actually wrote to me and said, we recognize that the work that you're doing means that the gay kids that will be in my synagogue or in my day school 10 years from now will have an easier time than we're having. Mm -hmm. But can you do something for us today? Because we feel really isolated. Like, yes, I am allowed to be in BBYO, but I'm the only out person in my region and I feel really alone. Mm -hmm. And that makes me not want to be a part of the community. So that led us to start offering LGBTQ and ally teen Shabbatonim. And so these are weekend retreats for kids that function primarily as just a place for them to feel unselfconsciously at ease and at home with one another and to be in the majority, not to be the only one. It's also a place where we do leadership skills training with kids so that in particular, in the current political climate, a lot of the kids are eager to return to their home communities and be activists for change on LGBTQ issues and on a host of issues. And so we do training to help them develop those skills. And then our third area of work is mobilizing the Jewish community around LGBTQ rights work in the broader world. So for example, our main campaign right now is that here in Massachusetts, we're facing a ballot question in November that seeks to repeal civil rights protections for transgender people. So if we lose, then it means that it would be legal for a ticket seller at a movie theater to turn away a transgender person because 
they don't like transgender people or a doctor to refuse someone's service or someone to be refused service at a restaurant or a hotel, you know, just basic access to public spaces. And the reason that we're focused on this campaign, in addition to the fact that our national office is here in Massachusetts, is because this campaign has very scary national implications because the religious right that has mobilized this question on the ballot is viewing Massachusetts very openly as the battleground state for the fight against transgender rights. Their view is if it can pass in Massachusetts, which is considered the most liberal state in the country, then it can pass anywhere. You know, so our work is to make sure that Jewish community members know about this, know about how destructive this would be to civil rights and basic dignity, understand why it's our responsibility as Jews preserving the civil rights that do exist and make sure that when Jews go to the poll that they vote yes on this question. What I heard from you that I really loved was this idea that you listen to your people, right? You were doing the work you were doing and the kids were coming to you and saying, this is great, but we'd love to see this and this and really adapting you know, the work that you did and how you did it to say, oh, like, it's not what we do, but, you know, it's clearly a need, clearly somewhere that we could have an impact. And then, you know, shaping the organization and your work around that. That's really fantastic. When you specifically kind of think about your work within institutions, is it generally a singular person who is coming to you saying, we want your resources? Like, does it take a strong leader in an institution mm-hmm. to say, we're doing this, right? Like, we're changing our signs, we're changing our policy. Or is it more often that it's kind of your slow engagement instruction of things out of the community understands why and does it? Or is it top down or down up or depends on the community? So you're going to see a theme in how I respond to a lot of your questions and that my response is both and, yes, and, (laughs) yes. Very frequently, there is a kind of concerned, agitated member or leader, whether they be a staff member or the parent of a kid who becomes aware that things are not as they should be. So very often it is the kind of activist leader who comes to us and says, this is unacceptable. I want your support to make a change. That's one way that engagements happen. And I would say that was most common in our early years. Nowadays, it's probably about 50-50, a concerned person responds to some kind of catalyzing incident and 50% just a general sense in the leadership of an institution that you know, just like they, if it's an institution that works with kids, that they need to be CPR certified. So too, they need to have cultural competency around LGBTQ issues. So of course it has helped that over the years, you know, as we've grown, we've gotten more funding available to do this work. And so that we can make it pretty easy for Jewish institutions to access training through us because, you know, we have ample staff and resources and thank God have donors who really want to see, who share our vision of a Jewish community where every Jewish institution is a place where people can feel at home, where LGBTQ people can feel at home um, and recognize that training and resources are necessary to get there. So that means, you know, we have the organizational capacity to make training and resources much more accessible to institutions. And so that certainly helps, you know, and then of course the, you know, general 
growth in awareness, you know, in society at large around LGBTQ issues, you know, has filtered down into the Jewish community. And so again, so there's more widely held understanding that these are among the issues that educators and Jewish communal workers need to concern themselves with. It was very dramatic for us to see how this shift from we'll take this on if there's some kind of crisis or some kind of catalyzing incident, we're responsible to engage with these issues, you know, as we are a whole host of issues. It was really dramatic to see evidence of that shift in what we heard from Jewish community leaders really starting on November 9th, 2016, and since then. Because what happened for Keshet on November 9th, 2016, um, and in the immediate days afterward, was our receiving a flood of requests from heads of day schools and JCCs and youth group advisors and teachers at day schools and rabbis saying, you know, these are all cisgender, meaning not transgender, straight people saying, I know that I have kids, congregants, community members, etc., who are LGBTQ, who are going to be feeling vulnerable in the days ahead. I don't know what to do to show them that I support them and that this community stands with them, but I really want to figure it out. Will you help? Well, since you brought it up, I will ask, I also asked this question of my guest from ADL, considering our current Supreme Court climate and the recent you know, decision that came down regarding the gay couple who were trying to get a cake made for their wedding. And, you know, the prospect of the court being even more conservative. How do you keep hope alive? How do you kind of try and keep positivity in the future and, you know, in facing pretty daunting parts of the way that our society is changing? That, you know, when gay marriage came down, it was amazing, right? so positive and this wasn't really you know something we could have imagined at the time and now here we are and the pendulum has really swung you know the other way unfortunately yeah just how do you keep that hope alive that regardless of kind of the darkness we're finding ourselves in that maybe in the next 13 years right things will continue to go forward so i'll answer kind of both entirely personally and then both personally and professionally. So entirely personally, I would say, again, going back to my activist origin story of learning about the bad men when I was four years old, for me, to put it in stark terms, for me, growing up knowing that my grandparents survived Auschwitz and knowing what they each lost, you know, knowing that my paternal grandfather had a wife and a daughter before the war who were killed and knowing what they all were able to rebuild afterward, it doesn't get worse than that. So it's like, I know that in my own family, we survived what we were not meant to survive and went on to rebuild in a way that we were never supposed to be able to rebuild. Personally, I feel like, how can I ever despair? So that's personally. And that obviously is a deep source of motivation for me. As a queer activist and leader specifically, you know, again, I remember the days pre-marriage equality, which turned out to be just a few years before marriage equality in Massachusetts, when really it was widely believed that this would never happen. Right. That it would never happen in this country. 
And in less than one generation, it did. And pretty swiftly for the long history of the fight. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Within, within the scope, when you're talking about social change and the arc of history, when it comes to civil rights and justice, you know, I mean, certainly people have been fighting for LGBTQ rights for generations and generations. But in terms of, you know, the change that you and I have seen, you know, in the last 20 years in our lives, it's both dramatic and it's beyond what anyone could have imagined possible. Which isn't to say that I don't have moments of despair and feeling overwhelmed and powerless the way most humans do. But I also am able to gain a lot of strength and a powerful sense of hope from the kinds of changes that I've seen just within my adult life. Right. And I think it's not that I'm going to speak for you, but you know, the, in your work, you get to see the changes that are happening on the ground, right? You get to see the changes that are happening in the way that, you know, as you mentioned, the teens that talk to you, mm-hmm. they know that the next generation of teens will be treated differently than they are sure. in different climates that they're growing up in. So even just having those smaller grassrootsy changes, you know, within the mm-hmm. culture of our community, the things that you can't control, right? Because mm-hmm obviously can't control who gets on the Supreme Court and the decisions that they make and why they make them. But the things that you know, the work that you're doing that you can control and seeing that change, I hope that brings you hope. (laughs) No, I mean, like in the early 2000s, you know, supported a then 15 year old girl who was campaigning really in the face of tremendous resistance to establish a gay straight alliance at her Jewish high school. And this was at a time when there was not a single Jewish high school in the country with a gay straight alliance. And she faced a lot of homophobia and a lot of discouragement. And it wasn't at all clear that it would happen. And in a year long campaign with support from Keshet, she was able to establish a gay straight alliance and four teachers out of a faculty of 25 came out, including the head of the Tanakh department. And 15 years later, there's close to a couple dozen Jewish community high schools with gay straight alliances. And that's progress. That's the kind of progress you're working towards, right? Wonderful. So I'd love to kind of hear a little bit, you know, either in how you start the conversation with Jewish professionals or for those who are listening, how we can be thinking about these issues within our own organizations. What is it we should be looking for? What are some ways we can maybe change our thinking or help move progress forward within our own organizational culture? I mean, I often start with saying, if you work for an organization that is kind of open to the public, like whether it's a school or JCC or JFCS, an organization that people walk into, imagine yourself as an LGBTQ person. Imagine yourself as a transgender 17-year-old and walk through the door and think to yourself, what am I going to see that tells me that I'm a part of this community? Or what might I see that communicates to me that I'm not a part of this community? Right. Ask the same question when you imagine going onto your organization's website, you know, looking at the language, looking at the pictures, looking at, you know, the text of the work that is described going onto your organization's social media. You know, if you're an organization that, you know, is involved in social justice work, you're talking about your synagogue and, you know, most synagogues have social justice committees. What's on the agenda of your social justice committee? In most communities in this country now, you know, given the issues we were talking about before, there's some effort to repeal 
LGBTQ civil rights legislation or an effort to gain religious exemptions to LGBTQ civil rights legislation. So where is your community's voice on those questions? When do your leaders speak out and when do they remain silent? Think about how might a kid's experience in a community be different than an adult's? You know, a lot of LGBTQ adults who are members of synagogues that see themselves as inclusive themselves are surprised when they hear from LGBTQ young people how isolated and alienated they feel. You know, because there's a whole kind of different set of messaging that needs to be happening directly to kids, you know, than happens to adults. Kesha is here for consultations and preliminary conversations to get the ball rolling, you know, with any Jewish community institution that's interested. It's just like about raising your level of awareness in this area. You know, if you have a mommy, daddy and me mm-hmm. program at your synagogue, like, yeah, maybe it doesn't rhyme as well to say parents and me or, you know, some other verbiage, but to really think about what does that communicate to new families if you're trying to grow a synagogue or, you know, or your community and you know, there's a lot of things I think we tend to do that we just do, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're doing a mommy, daddy, and me program. Like, we're engaging young families through that without even having that higher kind of second level of awareness being like, oh, wait, like, how could this be perceived when right. we've always had a mommy, daddy, and me program, right? <laughs> like, don't fix what's not quote unquote broken, but to raise your level of awareness a little bit in this area and really think about how does, as you just mentioned, how does this actually come off to somebody who makes work community and what is the harm in changing this name? And sometimes I wouldn't say change is harmful, but sometimes there are losses that come with change. We've done a lot of work with BBYO over the years and you know, BBYO is a youth movement that has been structured from the beginning, you know, according to a binary gender system. There's BBG for girls and AZA for boys. And, you know, there are generations of kids who are now adults who hold, you know, extremely fond memories regarding what their experiences were in BBG and AZA and are attached to some of the traditions that are very gendered traditions. We've had some really challenging and excellent conversations with their leadership over the years around what's to be gained by moving towards a more gender-inclusive approach that encompasses multiple genders, not only two gender identities, and that moves away from some of the gendered rituals, but also recognizing what's to be lost. And I think that's important for us, you know, not to dismiss because that's also a part of people's real experience. Right. And that's why I asked the question about strong leadership within an institution who's willing to take that risk, who's willing to come in and say, this is just how it's going to be, you know, and I know it's going to be hard and we're going to experience a little bit of loss and it's a bit of a culture change. I can only imagine that the more serious into the issue you get, but when you start talking about it beyond LGBTQ and into transgender issues and things of that nature, that you would have an older population in some communities where that's an uncomfortable change for them. So to have a strong leader that says, this is what we're doing, like it or not, you know, it's, this is like the right thing to do as our Jewish values are instructing us and make this change given the loss, because I can see a lot of communities that will talk about it and have mm-hmm. a on it and talk a little more about right. it. And that, you know, it takes a little bit slower to actually be able to make these changes than when you have a strong leader that says, we're just doing this. Exactly. Wonderful. So thinking a little bit more just about your Jewish professional side and, you know, all the work that you've done, I'd love to hear a little bit to kind of go back to the beginning of our conversation. 
what were some things that you thought or assumed when you first started in this role that you now know is different or some assumptions you had made when you first started that you now think maybe differently on? Really hard question to answer. I mean, I was 28, 17 years ago when I became the founding executive director. You know, there was so little that I knew. I mean, I really, right. uh, I mean, what I knew was that after several years of being in volunteer leadership at Keshet and seeing this organization, you know, have periods of activity and long periods of dormancy, I knew that if we were going to really make a difference in the Jewish community, we needed to have paid staff. So that was something that I knew. I decided someone needed to try to step up and make it happen. And I decided I would try to do that. Clearly you've succeeded in at least <laughs> so, that now area. Yes. You know, if I could now kind of give advice to my younger self, I would tell myself to kind of seek mentors and support and the support of networks even more than I did. I mean, I was blessed with a couple of kind of guardian angel mentors who I happened upon early on and was also blessed with networks like the Joshua Venture Fellowship. I would say that, you know, even more of that is beneficial to any leader, particularly someone who is leading a startup organization. I would say... Did you think it was going to be easy? (laughs) You started, you're like, oh, like, this is like my heart, my soul. And like, we're going to get this done. It's going to be so awesome. Or did you think it was going to be harder than it was? Did you think the resistance would have been different than what you actually experienced? I would say that I tend to be relentlessly optimistic and, you know, which can be really annoying at times (laughs) for people in my life. So I don't remember thinking a lot about what would be hard, which isn't to say that if you had asked me at the time, what do you think will be hard? I could have answered you because there were certainly plenty of things that were hard, but it just, I think it's just not my general way of moving through the world to focus on what's hard, which perhaps is why I you know, have been able to achieve certain things because I've kind of focused on or moved from an assumption of making it possible and being able to make it happen. Yeah, I certainly didn't have a sense of, you know, how challenging it would be at certain points, particularly in my first few years, you know, to be raising funds for this work. I didn't have a sense because I hadn't done it before of how challenging it would be in the early days to get Jewish communities signed on to the need for this work. You know, because again, in those early days, the resistance, there's plenty of resistance today. And today there's much more of a sense that, you know, these are issues that are a part of the Jewish community, whereas in those early days, there really wasn't. And so there was kind of a lot of just kind of basic translation and basic making the case for the need for this work over and over again that I don't think I fully anticipated. Yeah. And now you're in a place where clearly, you know, November 2016, you're seen as the go-to, whether it's proactive or reactionary, or what do we do with the the situation that we've been given that wasn't there before. So it's really wonderful. Any other advice that you have for our listeners, for people in the field doing this work? I mean, for people in the field, just doing social change work in general, I would say, or really any work, but I'd say particularly for those doing social change work, particularly because we are living through such a trying time, finding your places of nourishment and honoring that and making the time for that and investing in that is so key, you know, and recognizing that all of us who get to have places of nourishment, sources of nourishment, 
in our lives that we're all incredibly privileged and, Mm -hmm. you know, recognizing that privilege, you know, and recognizing that we will be more effective, not by denying ourselves, but acknowledging that we have that privilege and then seeking the nourishment that we need in order to be, you know, our most powerful, most effective, best selves, because the world needs that of us. So are those some of the tools you implement for staying balanced and getting all your work done? And I'm sure you do a lot of traveling in your position. Are there other ways you make sure that you are happy and healthy? (laughs) I mean, something very basic. I don't work on Shabbat and I'm very strict on that. I'm not traditionally strictly Shabbat observant. So, you know, I will use electricity or text with a friend, but for years now, I will not do work email or take work calls or do other work on Shabbat. And it's remarkable for me how much of a difference that makes. I'm also very boundaried when it comes to going on vacation. I'm someone who actually has pretty open boundaries in my life between my work and the rest of my life. But when I'm on vacation, I do not check my email and you know, I know people who say, well, if I don't check my email, then I'll come back to even more email. And that's so stressful. But I say, give me the avalanche that awaits me after a two-week right. vacation <laughs> anytime because the level, I mean, I just came back from a two-week vacation and I've been back for a week and I still feel a sense of just inner greater strength and a deep level of relaxation, you know, from having stepped away for a couple of weeks. And again, it's an enormous privilege to get to do so. And there's something definitely painful about recognizing that. But I think I will be you know, better for recognizing it and living with the reality of the privilege that I have and trying to use it responsibly, you know, than to pretend that it's not existent. Yeah, those breaks are really important. If you're smart about it, you say no meetings, you know, the first two or three days that I'm back and you kind of schedule that out, then it's the break as well worth that, as you mentioned, the avalanche. In an effort of sharing too much information, I went on a vacation recently and I like Facebook for connecting their friends and family. And a lot of my lay leaders are also on Facebook and we're friends on Facebook. So I made a separate group for them and (laughs) and all my posts that week, they didn't get to see. And I was like, I just need a break. I'm like, I just need a little bit of space and it's all good. Uh They know I'm away and I want to share my vacation, but just not with them. And that's okay. And I, someone was asking about it. I was like, yeah, well, you know, everyone finds their way of separating. That's kind of meaningful and nourishing them. They can see all the rest of my posts. Just for me. Right. Wonderful. Well, we've covered a bunch of ground in terms of your own personal experience, the work that you do, some of those trials and tribulations and successes. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you'd like to mention in any of those areas? I just want to add that another thing that I and the rest of us at Keshet have been really struck by since the election is the degree to which kids are really paying attention to what our Jewish community leaders say and don't Mm. say. And I think that's always been the case, but particularly at a time in which, you know, LGBTQ kids and, you know, and anyone who doesn't feel represented by the current administration, particularly at a time in which they feel so abandoned by and hurt by what they hear coming out of the Oval Office, they're looking to their Jewish community leaders for people to be taking a stand and to say, you know, no matter what you hear from the Oval Office, this community stands by you. And so I wish we didn't have this opportunity, but we're living in a time of tremendous opportunity for our Jewish community institutions to make a lifelong difference and make a lifelong connection for our kids. 
that's something that I really want our leaders to hear. Yeah. And it helps us struggle with what are those Jewish values and what do we hold most dear and, and what are we willing to express in the effort of those values, mm-hmm. which is not something you always have to struggle with, right? Sometimes it's easy. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Adi, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you right. and your story and your experience. And People can go on our blog to read your full bio and get in touch with you and websites on there as well to connect when they start thinking about how people experience their organization through this lens. So thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thanks so much, Michelle. Be well. The Jewish community has always struggled between traditional Jewish norms and adapting to the modern society around it. Clearly, some aspects of Judaism are more open to change than others. Some communities don't allow a non-Jewish person on their bima. Some rabbis will marry a gay or lesbian couple, but not an interfaith couple. Some synagogues don't want to change the names of their programs, and individual congregants don't want to see people who they think are different join their community. These are all factors Adit works with in her attempts to make our Jewish institutions more inclusive to all people, regardless of their gender identity. Her work helps people feel more comfortable and become more informed so that when the time comes to make tough decisions, they are not made from a place of fear or darkness. I highly commend her work, both in the social change she is looking to create, but also in her success in growing the organization and helping to usher the Jewish community into a more inclusive, open place where we can continue to be welcoming and warm and embody our Jewish values of community. If you take a look at your own organization and see that there are some areas where you could be more inclusive, some places where education might help bring people along for the change, please reach out to Keshet and let them help guide you in this journey. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's who you know the This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.